0: Again, there we go. Uh, one assignment due this week which is the second quiz which is up and available through the end of the day, meaning six o'clock tomorrow. So if you hadn't taken it this weekend, you can still go in and take that sometime <laughs> after class. It will lock out at six o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, I gave you homework three last week. That is due, uh, week, uh, next, that is due next week. Uh, and then the second solar observations in quiz three. So once you get through quiz two, there's nothing else. Uh, in terms of assignments that will be due, this coming this this current week that we're in, and that'll give me a chance as I'm just getting my other classes caught up to get back and get yours caught up with the. I have a homework and article reviews and lab to get graded for you guys, so I'll hopefully have that back. Hopefully by the end of the week, you should have a bunch of those materials back. So any questions on anything there? Nope, nope. All righty. Pick yes. Yeah. No, that's what I just said. I said I haven't gotten those hopefully back by the end of the week. Okay. Okay. Anything else? Nope, nope, nope. nope. Alrighty. Uh, picture of the day for today. Uh, today is the autumnal equinox. So this is the Earth at Equinox. It's actually a short, it's a video. It plays for about four seconds. So I'll play it here in j- just a moment. Uh, but today is the equinox actually late. Late this, e- late this evening into night, like 10, is it 10 something tonight for our time? I'm sorry? 1057, 1057? thank you. I was looking it up, I always I was had it in universal time which is like at two o'clock in the morning. So, uh, but that will be the equinox. Now what that means is that the Earth's axis at that point is not pointing towards or away from the Sun so that the length of the day will be exactly the same. So equinox is meaning equal day and night. That day and night will be exactly the same today. So you have 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness. Previous to this, all summer, right? Days have been nice and long. And uh, nights have been shorter. And continuing now forward, it'll start to get uh, much shorter days and longer and longer nights up up through uh, the winter solstice, which will be in the uh, latter part of December. The other thing it means is that for your uh, observations it's now going, the shadows are getting longer and longer. If you've had a chance to make a couple observations, you may have noticed your shadows significantly increasing, and you're going to see that continue on as we go. The shadows right now are changing at their fastest, so they're going to be changing most rapidly. Really through the month of September they'll go from very, very quick, uh, from very high above, the equator down very, very low below it, and within just about a month from now you'll really be able to see significant changes from the numbers you were taking in August when you started. So the clip is just from is taken from a satellite and it's just showing that the at this point you can see the dividing line between day and night is actually straight up and down as it rotate as it moves around the Earth. So you can see that there, and again that's as long as the clip runs. But Normally the earth would be tilted, we'd have that on an angle so you'd have the North Pole during summer pointing towards the sun and constantly illuminated. The shadow would never reach it. You'd have during our winter the South Pole pointing towards the sun and being fully illuminated 24 hours a day. Um, And you'd have other areas that were completely in darkness. So that's when you get areas, if you go very, very far north, if you've ever traveled up to Alaska or Scandinavia, you notice that the days and nights are much more extreme than we get here. You know, we, get, we get days that are a couple hours longer. You can get there where essentially the sun, if you get far enough north, the sun will never set. But even when you get pretty far north, the sun sets, but barely. It gets a little below the horizon and it never actually gets dark. You get sort of a twilight for a while and then the sun rises again. So. That's where we are right now. We're at the equinox. Your shadows are going to be, they've been getting longer. They'll continue to get longer over the rest of the semester that you're measuring for the solar observations as well. So questions before we go on to talk about the moon a little bit? No, no, no. All righty. Well, let's go look at the moon a little bit. And we're kind of jumping through chapter 5. I'm not covering a whole lot of chapter Mm 5 in this section as we're covering a set of five chapters. Chapter five talks a little bit about the surface of the moon and when you look out at the moon you notice at once that it's not nice a nice uniform smooth sphere you can't see craters with your naked eye you can't actually pick out craters as we can see here with your eye But with a small telescope, Galileo was very easily able to see those. But you do see that there are very dark patches, there are darker areas here, and there are lighter colored areas. That is very visible to your eye. So you go out there and look at the moon. Uh, When it comes back around, we're approaching New Moon right now, so in another week or so you'll be able to see the moon, a nice quarter moon in the evening sky, and you'll be able to see that there are some very, very dark areas to it and some very light areas. And those are two very distinct parts of the moon. There are lo- the dark, dark areas are very flat and smooth and are actually co- are caused by lava flows. So volcanic activity on the moon flooded this. And you can see, looking at maybe this image, you see where there's some craters and some mountains over here. And this one is a great flat plain, very little in it. And they're called uh, Maria. Or one of them is called a mare, m-a-r-e, meaning sea. So, two early astronomers—they would have looked, they might have looked like seas. They might have considered, you no, know, maybe these—this is the water on the moon. And they are—we call, still call them seas. We still use the terminology, but we know that there is no water on the moon. But it is evidence of lava flows that occurred several billion years ago. Um, The moon would have had volcanic activity three to four billion years ago. It formed with the earth about four and a half billion years ago. So these occurred a long time ago from us but in terms of a solar system perspective they're relatively recent. There's not been a lot of change to them. There have not been a lot of craters that have hit them. All the craters that hit the rest of the moon occurred very early on, much earlier than that. So the large areas, the dark areas that you see when you look up at the moon are the maria. And the lighter areas are called the highlands. Those are the higher areas. And those are cratered and mountains. As compared to the maria which are very, very flat. So when you look at the image here, you really don't see within that, Mario, you're just going to see a few craters. A few more recent craters that have hit, but not a whole lot. Not like what you see over in other areas where there's craters and lots of craters. And you get to the point where there's craters on top of craters. Look down in this section, which is very heavily cratered. You know, the craters are not distinct. They're lapping, they're lapping on top of each other as they, for the constant impacts that occurred over many billions of years. This is a newer area for the surface of the moon which is still very old compared to the earth. Now how do we form those craters? Well, what happens, and we looked at this when we looked at the earth last time, a meteoroid, something strikes the moon and smashes into it. Now that's not just thrown in there or hitting there at a very low speed. These things are hitting at incredibly high speeds and they smash into the ground and cause a great explosion. That explosion ejects material out and leaves the remnant, the crater, behind it. So leaves the material behind. So the meteor itself throws some material out. That would cause a little crater. That would be if you had a small meteorite, wouldn't be in, or not hitting quite as fast. It wouldn't be as intense to throw out a great amount of material. If you get one that's going really fast, embeds it down in there and actually explodes it actually rips part of the surface apart and throws that out. And then what you have left behind is a crater here with a rim around the edge, so material around the edge where it's built up. You've dug out this area down below the surface and you have material that's been ejected that spreads out all around the crater. So not only do you have the damage here, but you have that damage spread out in the, ex- in the impact, in the explosion, where a lot of material was spread way over the entire surface of the moon. And we see this in some of the images. In fact, I'm going to let me go back for a second because I think I might have one here and then I'll be right back here. Uh, can we see a little bit? We can see here. If we look at a couple of these, you can actually see that. There's some of these bright craters. You see all the lighter material around them, that is material that is ejected out. You'll get the rays, these streaming rays of material. That is all the material that was ejected out in the explosion. So, a little bit more down here. You can see the rays from the crater down off the screen coming up. And that is all due to the impact itself. It dug up all that lighter colored material from below and spread it out across the moon's surface. That's one thing that tells us that a crater is relatively new if we see that the rays around it, it hasn't been sitting there for a very long time because even on the moon, which has no atmosphere, which has no water to wear down that crater, it also has something that the earth doesn't. It has little tiny meteorites that strike it all the time. Right? We get these too, we call them shooting stars because they burn up in our atmosphere. The moon not having an atmosphere, it's got all those little specks that we see as shooting stars. Instead of burning up in the moon's atmosphere, which doesn't exist, they strike the moon's surface and slowly pulverize it. So their the moon is constantly being bombarded by these little tiny particles. And over astronomical times, over many millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years, they'll eventually start to wear down the crater, but really wear down these, the rays and the material that's been ejected out. They'll sort of wear it out and it'll mesh back into what's been, what we see with the rest of the moon. So we can see a relatively new crater. It'll look nice and sharp and we'll see the rays that are, that are around it. That tells us that it's a relatively new crater. Now I gave you some of these numbers last time. I did actually put them up here this time for you. That Craters are typically about ten times as the size of the meteor that creates them. So, if something about a meter, a meter in size smashes into the earth or the moon, you'll get a crater about ten meters in size. Something ten meters in size would create a hundred meter crater. Something a hundred meters, a football field size one, would create something about a kilometer across. That's what we saw last time we saw a meteor crater out in Arizona. And that was about maybe a kilometer across. So that was a, a rock the size of a football field that struck the earth. Very difficult to detect something like that. So it's not something that we could very easily detect, even something of that size, floating through space. The objects are very, very dark and difficult to detect. So about 10 times as wide, about twice as deep. So that that 100 meter uh, astro- uh meteor, meteor, meteor that smashes into the earth, that smashes into the earth will dig down about two hundred meters so it 'll dig down even deeper that doesn 't mean that the damage stopped that 's about how, dig it, how how deep it dug but the rock is actually pulverized the impact is that intense that you actually d- damage the rock even far below that in terms of the moon, most of the craters are about three and a half to four billion years old. That's the time about, about 3.9 about 3. 3, 3. the number given. The, since then the number of meteors hitting has slowed down significantly. So early on in the solar system history the first, million, billion, first billion years or so between four and a half and three and a half billion years that's when the moon, the earth, all the other planets were getting bombarded by meteors. Since then, after that point, most of that material was swept up. It was collected by the planets. It either became part of the Earth, right? The the meteor smashes into the Earth, it's stuck there. It's not getting away to go do it again. It's now a part of the Earth. And we slowly eliminated all of those objects. So there are a lot less objects now than there were four billion years ago. So most of the cratering occurred in the entire solar system, not just on the moon but occurred in that first billion years or so of the, for, of the formation. Since then it's slowed down. Do we still get some? Yeah, that's why we see in the middle of those maria you see a few little impact scars where the objects that are still floating around have struck the moon. Alright, where did the moon come from? It's a good question. The moon is quite different from every other moon in the solar system in that it is very large compared to the object it's orbiting. Okay? We've, talked about, we'll talk, we've talked about that there are 160 some moons in the solar system. Most of them are very, very tiny compared to anything they orbit. Uh, there are two moons around Mars. They're very tiny little asteroids. So not very big. Uh, There are some big moons around Jupiter and Saturn but if you still, if you draw them to scale, you have gigantic little Jupiter and a moon orbiting around it. Very small compared to the planet. For the earth, you've got the earth and you've got the moon. Yes, it's a lot smaller, it's about one quarter the size, but much closer in size than this. We don't see anything like this again until we get way out in the outer solar system with Pluto. Pluto actually has a moon that is even closer to size than the Earth. So where did the moon come from? Why is the Earth the only planet of the eight planets that has a moon that is so big? Again, Mercury has none. Venus has none. Mars has two little ones. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune have lots of moons including some that are bigger than our own moon but nothing that is comparable like this to the size of the planet. So it leads us to a different theory for how the moon originated. And these are some slides from a model that explain that maybe uh, 4 plus billion years ago we had the earth forming here, metals differentiating and going down to the core, the rocky materials further out as as the earth heated up, and this other object, maybe something the size of Mars, smashes into the Earth. And what that does is that explains or that does that it, it disrupts the Earth completely. You know, rips a, rips big chunks of the Earth off. A lot, a lot of this material goes into orbit around the Earth, and you can see that here and here. And what's left over would eventually this material would eventually form the Moon. If you notice the blue, most of the blue, it's here. It ends up kind of coming back into the Earth. You can see it slowly disappearing and coming back into the Earth where this big scar was. And the material that's left behind is much rockier. Much less metal and much more rock. And that explains a couple things we observe about the moon. The moon doesn't have much of an iron core. Yeah, it's got some iron, but compared to the Earth and the other planets, it has very little iron. So any model that explains where the moon came from has to be able to explain why did all the iron, why does the earth have all the iron and the, and the moon not? So That's one of the reasons we use this model. It also explains why the earth is the only planet with the moon like this. Perhaps such a collision wouldn't be very likely between two very large objects like this and the earth happens to be the one where this happened and, got, and gave us the moon. Venus, similar in size to the Earth, otherwise very similar to the Earth, doesn't have, doesn't have a moon. Perhaps it never had a collision that occurred like this. So this is one way that we have to explain where the moon came from and why the Earth is the only object in the solar system that has a moon that is really such a large fraction of its own size. Here's sort of a sketch of what we think a few billion years of history on the moon. This would have been what it looks like, uh, looked like four billion years ago. This would have been before the lava all began to flow. This is back when the moon had solidified. It got a hard crust on it, real thick crust, and it was constantly being hit by meteors. Not just the little tiny uh, grains of sand and specks of dust, but big things, things that were meters or tens of meters or even hundreds of meters or more across. So it was sm- all those were smashing into it, and really the moon was just completely cratered. Then what happened is the larger impacts of these were much lower and at some point the moon melted inside. It heated up enough inside that it actually melted and lava was able to flow up through these cracks and fill in the low-lying areas. And that gave us the maria that we see today. So, 4 billion years ago the moon would have been completely and totally cratered. 3 billion years ago Some of those craters are still there. Those were the higher areas, the highlands that were not, they were too big to be flooded when lava began to flow out. And you begin to see the maria. Now at this point the maria would have been completely smooth. They would have been more solidified lava but just recently solidified and it would have been completely smooth. More like what we see today is that over that three billion years the moon has still been being hit by craters, by impacts and we begin to cover up the maria. If the moon would last another five, ten billion years, eventually you'd wipe out all, you'd wipe out the signs. You'd get enough impacts that eventually you'd begin to wipe out the maria and you wouldn't really see a whole lot there. So, sort of a real quick summary of what happened, you know, with the moon, very early, heavily cratered. Every single object in the solar system would have been like that at some point. Anything with a solid surface, Mercury would have looked like that. Earth uh, would have been very heavily cratered. Quickly on everything changed afterwards depending on how much energy those objects had. Something like the Earth that was very hot would have not only melted and lava would have covered part of the surface but would have wiped out the entire surface. So the evidence that the Earth ever looked like this, the craters that should be there are long since destroyed. But we'll see that and we'll see cratering for all of the objects. Anything with a solid surface in the solar system. And speaking of solid surfaces, we move on to our next chapter in this uh, section. Uh, Chapter 6 covers the terrestrial planets. So we looked a little bit at the moon there. Uh, The moon we often talk about with the terrestrial planets even though it isn't a planet itself. Terrestrial planets themselves, we're going to look here at Mercury, Venus, and Mars. So those are the three planets that are most like the Earth, they're the ones that we could land on. We've landed on Mars, there's an example image taken from the craft on the surface of Mars. We've landed on Venus, I'll show you an image of that later coming up, that we've actually landed on the surface of Venus. Mercury we have not landed on, but if we really wanted to, we could. We could send a spacecraft that could land on Mercury, there's a place to land on it. When we get further out in the outer solar system, we'll find that there's no way to be able to land on these objects. So, just looking basically at Mercury and Venus, they're, Venus is probably the easiest planet to see, just because it's so bright. Mercury is about the hardest. In fact, if you've gone out, if you've ever gone out looking for planets, Mars is Mars. Jupiter, Saturn, even isn't too bad. Venus is really easy to see but Mercury is the hardest of the original five planets to be able to find. And that occurs because of the way they're orbiting. So there's our Sun, there's Mercury's orbit, and if the Sun is here, and wherever you put the Earth, the furthest Mercury can be away from the Sun is about 28 degrees. 28 degrees, what does that mean? Well, if you hold your fist out at arm's length, that's about 10 degrees. So if you put that on the horizon and stack it up three times, that's about how high Mercury can ever be at its highest in the sky. So if the Sun is just set below the horizon, Mercury can at best be about three-fifths above the horizon. Right? It's up higher, but it's always close to the Sun. So in order to see it, you've got to get the Sun below the horizon and have it still above. You also have to get it, well, get the Sun well below the horizon. So the Sun just setting, Sky doesn't get dark instantaneously, right? Up, sun went down, all of a sudden it's dark. Doesn't quite work that way. You need to get the sun a little further below the horizon, meaning you're looking even closer to the horizon when you're trying to see Mercury. And that's why for the longest time we did not know a lot about Mercury. We could not see it very well from Earth, even with big pow- high-powered telescopes, because you had to point them so low and try to catch it way looking through all the atmosphere and through a somewhat bright sky. Now something like Mars. Mars is here orbiting around. Mars can be out here. Sun on one side of the Earth, Mars on the other. Very easy to see Mars in the middle of the night. Point telescopes up nice and high and get nice images of it. So that's why astronomers were a lot easier able to study Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn early on than especially Mercury. And even to a similar extent, Venus. Venus never gets more than about 47 degrees away from the Sun. That's about five-fifths and Venus is a heck of a lot brighter than Mercury. So it stands out a lot more. It's a bigger planet, it's closer to us so it stands out a lot more and by the end of the year you'll be able to look out to the west right after sunset and you will see a real bright object there and that's going to be Venus. Getting higher in the sky towards the end of this year and into the beginning of next year. Getting much higher and higher. But one of the reasons we really don't know a whole lot about Venus or didn't until very recently. Uh, summarizing, their look at their atmospheres very briefly. Mercury has no atmosphere. Probably has a few particles around it, but it's too small. It doesn't have the gravity to hold on to an atmosphere. In order to hold, for the Earth to hold on to all the oxygen and nitrogen that is in our air, the gravity is what's pulling them down, what's keeping them from escaping out into space. So it's too small. It's too hot. Its temperatures are too high. Why does that make a difference? Well, when we heat up, remember what temperature was. Temperature is how fast the particles are moving. So it's too hot on the surface. Then the particles are moving faster and faster. They're more likely to be able to escape. Further away here at the Earth, the particles are moving slower. We're better able to hold on to them. So Mercury essentially has no atmosphere. Size and temperature really uh, rule that out. Venus, on the other hand, has a tremendous atmosphere, much thicker than the Earth's. This is an image here taken in the ultraviolet. So you can actually see some structures in the clouds. Normally, if you look at pictures of Venus, it's just a big, bland, uh, yellowish-brown color. And that's it. It's just completely cloud-covered. But what you're seeing here is not down into the surface. You're not seeing down to the surface of Venus, even here in the ultraviolet. You're just seeing different cloud layers, lighter and darker cloud layers you cannot see the surface of Venus from Earth. In fact, the only way you can see the surface of Venus is to send a spacecraft through the atmosphere. Now, interestingly enough, when you get out this far, when you're out in the outer atmosphere, the structure of it is pretty close to what we see for the Earth's outer atmosphere. So, for many years, until 1960s or so, it was thought that, you know, 50s, 1950s, 1960s, that Venus might have, might be something very similar to the Earth, maybe a little bit warmer, and be a nice tropical jungle planet down, down below, underneath that atmosphere that we couldn't see. And of course, having the fact that it was shielded uh, led to all sorts of speculations. So, could you have life on Venus? As, we, as was also thought for Mars. We now know that that's not the case. Venus's atmosphere composition is nothing like the Earth's. It's almost completely carbon dioxide. And 90 some, 90 plus percent carbon dioxide compared to our, you know, one percent fractional uh, amount. So very, very low amount of carbon dioxide. It's almost completely. It's incredibly dense compared to the Earth's. You wouldn't want to land there Uh, and because The pressure would not just be, you know, the pressure that you're feeling now from the atmosphere, which is what you're used to, would be 100 times greater. So it would be incredibly crushing. No, not enough to just crush you immediately, but it would be very, very, uh, very, very dense atmosphere pushing down on you. So it's got an incredibly thick atmosphere, 100 times the pressure of the Earth's, and extremely hot temperatures. Not just a little bit hotter than the Earth's, as was thought long ago, but hot enough to melt lead. Temperature gets up to 900 and something degrees Fahrenheit. Right? You turn your stove up pretty high. You turn it up to what? 400, 450? That's pretty hot for a kitchen stove. Double that and you've got the surface temperature of Venus. So extremely hot. And that's why when we did send spacecraft there uh, they didn't survive very long. In fact the longest ones lasted maybe i trying to remember the numbers now. Hour and a half to two hours is how long they could survive on the surface. High pressures, high temperatures, you know, not just something that you had to plan for that and you still knew that it was not anything you sent was not going to last very long. And that doesn't go into the fact that it also has a very corrosive atmosphere. Things like sulfuric acid are make up part of its atmosphere as well, and anything that we send with metals in it, you know, sulfuric acid is real good at ripping apart and tearing apart metals. So nothing that we sent lasted very long on, on Venus. But we have landed on its surface and we have you know, some pictures to actually see what the surface does look like. Mars, similar to, actually similar to, I should have changed that. It's more similar, actually similar to Venus's in composition. It's almost all carbon dioxide as well. Atmosphere of Mars is not very similar to is not that similar to the Earth. It's mostly carbon dioxide. Doesn't have lots of nitrogen or oxygen or anything that we're come to expect here on the on the Earth. It's also extremely thin though. So even though temperatures on Mars, even if it was made of oxygen and nitrogen, you still couldn't breathe it because like Venus's is hundred times thicker than the Earth's and was going to crush you, Mars's is one hundred times less. So even if there's atmosphere there, there's not enough that you're going to be able to, the, to breathe. We're used to a certain level of atmosphere, right? And if you travel to Denver, up a mile high, the pressure is significantly less. And you know if you're a runner and you're going to go running up and up there, you've got to go up and train first and get yourself used to that kind of pressure, lower pressure. That's still m- many times denser than what you have on the surface of Mars. So there is an atmosphere there. It does exist, but it's extremely thin by comparison. So, you have one planet with essentially no atmosphere among the terrestrials, one with an extremely thin atmosphere, you've got the Earth with what we would call an ordinary atmosphere, and then you have Venus that is incredibly thick atmosphere by comparison. What does Mercury look like? Well, looks a lot like the Moon there. I didn't tell you that was Mercury, you could probably tell me that was the Moon and feel uh, pretty confident about it. We see similar cratering to what we see on the Moon. Uh, Mercury probably had a very similar past to what the Moon was like. Uh, Mercury, again, we couldn't study it from the Earth. We sent a spacecraft back in the mid-1970s. One of the Pioneer spacecraft flew by Mercury a couple of times and took pictures of it. And until the last couple of years, those were the best images we still had of Mercury, were taken from the mid-70s. And we're only a part of Mercury's surface that happened to be visible when the spacecraft flew by it. Since then, we've actually put the Messenger spacecraft is in orbit around Mercury. That's where this image comes from. And it has been orbiting around Mercury for a couple of years now. It has actually completely mapped the entire surface in much more detail than we could ever get, ever hope to see on Earth. Cratering looks a lot like what we see on the Moon. You see some very similar similar structures, diff- lots of craters in areas. Not so much Maria. It's a little bit different in that you don't have all the Maria, the big planes, dark planes that we do see on the moon. But the cratering we see is very similar and again we're going to see that on the, all the solid surfaces of the solar system. Couple, uh, inter- one interesting feature is one thing that Mercury does get is a SCARP. A uh, SCARP is is here is like a cliff here on Earth, but you know we're used to seeing a cliff here on Earth, you know, a few hundred feet high, maybe. These things are tremendous in size. These things are three kilometers high. that's pushing two miles. So not just a little tiny cliff, but a cliff that goes up many miles, you know, mountain size here on Earth. And that's these areas that don't look very amazing out here, right' They're just these little bumps kind of on the surface. But those are actually the scarps that, oc- that occur on, on Mercury. But if we can zoom in looking at the scale, this is 100 kilometers. And if you could actually see that and go there, this thing would actually be many couple miles tall. So not just a little cliff, you're looking to scale, but you're looking to climb a couple miles to get up to get up that cliff. These are believed to form when the planet cooled off and shrank a little bit. If the inner layers condensed and solidified first, you'd kind of have this gap between the inner layers and the crust. And as the the crust had solidified, the inner layers solidified, and then they kind of all crumpled together. And those are the remnants of that. So that's where we think these scarps formed from, was when mercury was actually cooling off. Its Its crust cooled off first. Then the inner part cooled off a little bit, left you a little bit of a gap there, empty space, which then filled up as this collapsed down a little bit more. So we see those. We really only see the scarps, these type of scarps, on mercury. Uh, You see a couple kinds, occasionally other places, but Mercury is really the one that is really best well known for them. So, craters, lots of craters just like the moon, and some of these very long, uh, very long scarps that stretch. I did say, I said how tall they were, I didn't say that they also run across several hundred kilometers, hundreds of miles long as well. So they're not just a little cliff here, they actually go go out for very, very long distances. We see that on a lot of things in the in the solar system we're used to talking about you know mountains on Earth being so high or cliffs or Grand Canyon or anything. We see a lot of features elsewhere in the solar system that make those look like almost nothing in terms of size. There's a canyon on Mars that would stretch across the United States. We'll see that in a little bit here. How about Venus? What does Venus look like? Well, it's about the same size as the Earth and actually looks a lot like the Earth. If you see the images here. Obviously the details aren't the same, you're not going to see North America and South America and Africa and Europe and Asia and Australia as you'd see. But just in general if you look at the overall pattern, this is a radar map of Venus and a radar map of the Earth. So you've got very low lying areas here on the Earth, in this case the oceans, there's the Pacific, Atlantic Ocean, Indian Ocean. On Venus you have lower lying areas as well. Now the blue on Venus does not represent water. There is no water on the surface of Venus, right? I just told you it was 900 degrees Fahrenheit a little bit ago. So a little bit too warm even at those high pressures for liquid water to be present. So there is no water on Venus. But there are still lower areas and higher areas. So if you could flood Venus with water all of a sudden, the bluer areas would be the oceans and the seas. These higher areas would be the continental masses. So you'd have a continent up here, over here and here and some over here and some island, little islands and things that gathered around. So you'd see something quite similar, again, in the overall sense to what we see here on the Earth. And again, the only way we can see this is radar images. Put a satellite in orbit that uses radar and have it orbit around Venus and keep taking images and measure the distances. So you're getting elevations, where the higher areas are, where the lower areas are, but we're not really getting any images as to what Venus actually looks like itself. What does Venus really look like? So if we want to know that, we've actually got to get down below the clouds. And here is a spacecraft that landed on Venus. You can see a little bit of it off to here. And took images of Venus. These are some of the ones. These are the Venera spacecraft that the Soviet Union launched back in the 70s and into the early 80s. That's a little bit of this part of the spacecraft here in the image. And then you see out there, rocks, dirt of some kind, not dirt as we know it, but some kind of, you know, pulverized rock, uh, soil there that we'd find. So, in many ways, if you ignore the fact that you know, this a big, te- big temperature difference, big pressure difference, it doesn't look that different than what you might see in a desert area on the Earth. Similar for Mars. Mars looks very similar to a very desert area on the Earth. Rocks, just a lot of rocks scattered, really a lot of rocks scattered around. So, not a very alien landscape. Doesn't look all that different than what we're used to here on Earth. If you look at some place that doesn't have plants or animals or anything else on it. Doesn't have any living organisms on it. But anything else around here on Earth, it doesn't look all that different. Again, this Venera spacecraft lasted between about 10 and 15 minutes and maybe an hour and a half in terms of how long they could survive on the surface. That's one of the reasons there's been, you know, we talk about a manned flight to Mars. We don't talk about a manned flight to Venus. We don't have really the technology to be able to develop enough that's going to be able to hold up under the conditions that exist there. You know, 900 degrees, sulfuric acid, and other uh, corrosive compounds, and you know, very, ha- very, dense, uh, very dense atmosphere. So we just don't have the technology to be able to do that. In fact, the first Venera spacecraft that were designed as landers didn't make it down. They'd be parachuting through and they'd end up being damaged or corroded out or crushed before they got down to the surface. So it took a number of tries of getting, you know, constantly improving the mechanism to get it to be able to survive and get us images actually from the surface. All right, on to Mars, I said, we're just kind of zipping through, giving you a little overview of each of the planets here. Um, There's a couple different things here. Mars does have volcanoes. Uh, First time we've really seen volcanoes. Venus has some volcanic activity, had some volcanic activity as well. Mars has the biggest volcanoes that exist in the solar system. Um, You can't see the largest one. I'll show you that in a coming slide. Olympus Mons, the gigantic volcano, is a little bit further out. This is Valles Marineris. This is a great uh, valley on Mars. Compare it to the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon would fit in one of these little tiny teeny tiny little tributaries with lots of room to spare. This would stretch completely across the U.S., you know, from Washington to San Francisco if you put that there. Stretch completely across the United States. It's formed a little differently than the Grand Canyon though. Grand Canyon was what? Dug out by running water over many thousands of years. So, had a river there and it just slowly dug into the rock that was the weakest. And over a long time, over thousands of years, it dug out a great canyon. This is more like, and we didn't really talk about it in this class, but this is more like plate tectonics on the Earth. So if we talked about plate tectonics, we've got moving plates around. This is something that maybe is like what we call a rift valley, where two plates are starting to separate. This would be the border between two plates on Mars, where they maybe were starting to separate billions of years ago, before Mars cooled off too much to be able to have plates. Mars has since cooled off, and it's just a solid surface. So that might have been you know, plate activity like we see you know, out, in, out in California. Two plates against each other that give us all the earthquakes. Um, might have had something very similar starting to form on Mars. We certainly know that there was volcanic activity. We look at some of it. Mars does have some cratering in parts of it. You can see a little bit of cratering up here. You see some areas over here where there's hardly any cratering, especially over by the volcan- volcanoes. Makes sense to us, right? Volcanoes spew out lava. If there were lots of craters pocked all around here, that lava over years would eventually fill them up. Now those volcanoes have not been active for billions of years, but like the moon, most of the cratering occurred much earlier on in the the history. Here is the largest volcano in the solar system. Wasn't pictured in the other one. This is Olympus Mons. There's actually a set of three other big volcanoes that are a little bit smaller than this. But 700 kilometers in diameter. 700 kilometers that would be what about over 400 miles across. So good idea how big, we looked at big volcanoes here on Earth, right? But they fit nicely within you know a small, a good sized state. This wouldn't. 400 kilometers, well it would stretch across the state of Pennsylvania from Long End to Long End easily would actually fill, I think, you know, Arizona or New Mexico, you could actually fill with this volcano. So tremendous in size. How high is it? 25 kilometers? Uh, That would be about, what, about 20, a little over 20 miles high? Not 20, I'm sorry, 12? About 15 miles high. About 15 miles high. So 15 miles up there, that's about three times the size of Mount Everest. So Mount Everest, really tall mountain here, is dwarfed by this volcano on Mars. The caldera, caldera is the opening, that's where the lava would have flowed out. That would be the size of a tiny state, something like Connecticut, Rhode Island would easily would fit within just the opening where the lava was flowing out. So tremendous in size compared to anything that we see here on the Earth. Very, very large. Why do the vol- volcanoes on Mars get so much larger? Well, I mentioned plate tectonics, right? The plates move around on the Earth. That does things for, uh, for like the Hawaiian Islands, which are volcanic, and in fact a very similar type of volcano to this, is they're moving. The plate is moving. So you form a volcano, come back a couple, mil- a million years later, and it's moved. So the, vol- the, vol- the hot spot, the area where the volcano is forming, has moved. And the remnant of the volcano, the mountain that's left over, has now moved off further to the west. So that's why the the Hawaiian Islands are a chain. Because that hot spot, that weak part in the Earth's crust that's formed these volcanoes, has stayed in the same spot while the crust moves over it. So you form a whole big chain of volcanoes. Mars didn't have that. So this volcano, instead of just erupting for hundreds of thousands or a million years in the same spot, could do it for a billion years. And build up to a much higher level, right? Every time the lava flows out of there, it builds up a little bit more, builds it up a little bit higher, until you've built this one that is, you know, 15 miles high. So much, much higher than Mount Everest. It's not the, it's it's definitely the largest of the four main volcanoes. There are three other ones. They're a little bit smaller, but only a little bit. They're still much larger than anything we have here on the earth. All right, let me see. On the surface of Mars, there is no water. We know that right now. There is no liquid water on the surface of Mars. There can't be. In fact, the pressure and the temperature will not allow for liquid water. So any water put on Mars would immediately turn either to a solid and freeze completely or turn into a vapor, depending on the temperatures. You could not have a liquid phase of water with the current temperatures and pressures on Mars but we know that there has been in the past. We have seen evidence of trails there, little riverbeds on Mars, dried up riverbeds. So there's evidence that in the past, billions of years ago, that liquid water did flow on Mars. This crater here certainly looks like it didn't crash into a dry surface, Right? right? You see how this, instead of being nice and sharp, how everything's just kind of Blended out there, it looks like you threw a rock in the mud and just splashed the mud out all over the place. So that crashed into probably a surface was not completely liquid, obviously, because otherwise it's still there. But it was probably a very uh, wet, damp material at the time. So we do have evidence that we can see here. We can see evidence of uh, having flowing water in the past. We see evidence that there are uh, rocks that had to form in water, that could only form in water. On Mars, So we know that in the past there was liquid water. And we know currently that there isn't any. There is still water tied up a little bit in Mars' atmosphere. A lot of it in polar caps. It has a polar cap like the Earth's. That's frozen. And there is water tied up there. And there's probably a lot of water tied up below the surface. That's frozen below the surface. So there is a lot of water still on Mars. It's just nothing that is going to be liquid. But because it had liquid water at some point in the past, that's one of the reasons we think that Mars was a good candidate for life. So we think that Mars could have had life on it at some point in the past. We've sent a number of spacecraft there to try to test and check and see if there's any sign of life presently. To date, we're unsuccessful. We have not detected anything that definitely confirms that there is any kind of living organism on Mars. If it is, it's going to be something tiny, you know, microbes, uh, single celled organisms. That's going to be the kind of thing that people are looking for. We're well beyond the era of, you know, hundreds of years ago where we're looking for a whole civilization on Mars. If that had existed, we'd find the evidence of it. We would have found the evidence by now. We'd have definitely explored that significantly. All right. Jovian planets is chapter 7. Let me just give you the beginning of this and we'll pick up here on Wednesday. Um, Here's a picture of Jupiter. If you look with your Galileo scope, you won't quite be able to see that much detail on Jupiter. If you can hold it, you better be able to hold it really, really steady. So maybe if you mount it, you might start to see some evidence of structures there. You would be able to see, though, the moons. The moons are not visible with the naked eye, but you would be able to see the moon sitting out there. You won't be able to see any detail on the moons, but you certainly could see that they are, they are there and you could actually watch them, look at them one day, come back the next night, and you'd be able to see that the pattern had changed much as Galileo saw. That those patterns changed over time. That we did not see the same pattern of moons around Jupiter and that's where he was able to determine that they were actually orbiting. So Jupiter, we get nice Jupiter, Mars, we can get nice images of from the Earth. They get up nice and high in the sky and that's in contrast to Mercury and Venus. Mercury and Venus, very, very hard to see from the Earth. Jupiter, again, doesn't look like a beautiful image because we get kind of spoiled by all the images from spacecraft that are right out there. And you get a much better image when you're sitting right at the planet than you do when you're uh, millions of miles. hundreds of millions of miles away as we are from Jupiter but that's actually not a bad sight for a small telescope um, other telescopes can get a much better much better view but you're probably more used to seeing something like this maybe for Jupiter um, we do see it's the largest of the planets we do see that it has these band structures now you're actually seeing some detail in them this would be something taken by like one of the Voyager spacecraft and We have the great red spot, which I'll talk a little bit more about uh, coming up. But we do see lighter and darker band structures. So we see some patterns in the atmosphere. We don't see any surface. We cannot see down to a surface. There's no surface to see. If we wanted to land on this planet, there's just no way to do it. It's just an atmosphere that gets thicker and thicker and thicker. It would eventually get denser than anything we're used to here on Earth but it would just progressively get thicker, it would just be an atmosphere that thickens and thickens and thickens and would eventually crush any craft that you tried to land there. So I'm going to stop there, I'm going to go through each of the other planets, i just show you what Jupiter we will pick up with Saturn next time and I'll show you a little bit and we'll talk a little bit about each of those and then we'll finish up 7 and probably get on to chapter 8 on Wednesday and hopefully be able to finish up the planets on Friday so we can move out to the sun. If you have not taken the quiz, do make sure you get that done today so I can get your credit for that. So make sure you go online on D2L and get that done sometime before 6 o'clock tomorrow. Question? Have a good afternoon or rest of the morning first, I guess.